In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Politically Georgia podcast, where we bring you news and analysis from all the latest Georgia shenanigans in Congress and under the Gold Dome. And today I'm joined by Tia Mitchell, the AJC's still brand new, right? I can still call you new. Yeah, especially since I the moving trucks have not taken me to D.C. yet, so... I consider myself still new until I've been in D.C. full-time a couple months. There you go. So still brand new Washington correspondent who's in Atlanta, in Dunwoody, here today. We just, we're, if we sound a little lethargic, we're, we just ate a whole lot of food at the uh, the annual AJC holiday potluck. It was good. Amazing, as always. I had some good hot chicken. And the desserts were incredible. The brisket was good. It was all good. What was your favorite? Um... So this was not even like homemade, but we get these little sliders from Jason's Deli. Oh, <laughs> and then um, some mac and cheese. I had some good mac and cheese. I had like a giant plate of brisket. But that being said, we're here to talk about the latest developments uh, in Georgia politics. And slower week, especially con- compared to last week, which was the Kelly Leffler debut. And really, that's what's continued on into this week. Um, Kelly Leffler has continued to kind of have her a very kind of slow, methodical rollout. And over the weekend, I, got, I heard from a lot of elected officials and activists who said they heard from Kelly Leffler in person, personally, that she called on her personal cell, that she wanted to talk to these folks, talk, uh, introduce herself to many of them because she just doesn't know a lot of these grassroots elected officials and activists, and and hear their concerns straight from them. So it's it's part of um, a, an introductory moment. Um, to meet a lot of the movers and shakers who, who frankly don't know her at all. Yeah, and I think it's a smart move. As much as we on the media side are, you know, wondering when she's going to come out of hiding and talk directly to us, um, I do get that she's, you know, focusing right now on kind of reaching out to that GOP base that not only does not know her, but some of them had reservations about her becoming a senator. So, you know, she's trying to make those introductions and let people know who she is and kind of establish her own narrative, knowing that so many folks are waiting to try to establish a narrative for her. So I get it. And you still have that potential threat from Congressman Doug Collins or any number of other conservatives out there. And Doug Collins would be the chief one because he does have um, President Trump's support. But, yeah, I think we talked about this last time, too. It's it's very unique because it's not your typical she, – because she's a Senate appointee and not a candidate, you don't have that typical rollout period where there's a big announcement 
And then there's a, you know, travels throughout the state, meetings with editorial boards and local TV reporters in Albany and, and you know, in a rally in Macon. She has to, A, introduce herself to all these folks and B, get her office set up in Washington and start hiring staff right now because in about two or three weeks, she'll be full-time up there and have a whole constituent services department to run and, and, and have votes and, and policies and proposals and all this while also keeping one eye on the November 2020 ballot. That's right. And, you know, we noted today in the jolt, like, she's going to have to focus on impeachment immediately because the House is teeing up an impeachment vote for next week that would send articles of impeachment to the Senate. And the Senate has cleared its calendar in January in anticipation of an impeachment trial. And, you know, of course, she's expected to fall in line with Republicans who oppose removing President Trump from office. And so I don't expect her to buck that at all. But that's still like there's a lot of gravity in that your first official action as a U.S. senator might be to vote on whether to have a president removed from office. And if not her first vote, her first major vote. Yeah. But I mean, it, it doesn't look like the Senate. I mean, right now, Senator McConnell, who's the Senate leader, is saying that they're they're going to come back in January and the first thing on their agenda is going to be impeachment. You know, that could change, but it could be her first vote, period. It could be. Mm-hmm. And incoming Senator Leffler made it pretty clear how she feels about impeachment. She said she called it a circus in that introductory speech. She said she was pro-Trump, pro-wall, um, pro-Republican conservative policies, anti-abortion and, and all that. So she's made it pretty clear. She didn't say she was outright going to vote um you know, against impeaching president, ousting President Trump. But she made it pretty clear how she views the whole process when she calls it a giant circus. Yeah. I don't expect her to, you know, she's worked way too hard to establish herself as like someone who's going to be a supporter of President Trump. And, you know, there are too many naysayers. And this one would just, you know, prove all those conservatives right who had concerns about her becoming a senator. So even if there are some Republicans willing to kind of defect from the from the colleagues in the major in the Republican majority, um, I highly doubt she will be one of them. Yeah. And you mentioned Senator McConnell, the majority leader. Um, she had a very quiet meeting with Senator McConnell a couple of days ago. Um, so she's starting to meet the folks in Washington who will not just be instrumental in, in, in her first year, but also decide which committee she sits on, what what type of post she has, and, and, and what type of le- what, which legislation she's proposing gets anywhere. Right. Um, and, he, you know, it's a, again, I think she went to Washington quietly. We can assume that he was not the only person she met with when she was in Washington. We don't know who that is. Senator Leffler or your people, since we know that people listen to the podcast, if you're listening, holla at us. Give us heads up when you come to Washington. Let us know what's going on with you, girl. And our beloved colleague, Jamie Dupree, too, because all three of us were like, huh, you know, we thought we'd get that heads up, but we didn't. Not even a heads up. Yeah, so it goes. Um, well, we, let's also talk about when we're talking about Mitch McConnell and, and the power he holds over her her future. Uh, and, and by the way, we should say Senator McConnell was a supporter of Kemp appointing Kelly Leffler. Uh, as much as Donald Trump was a supporter of Doug Collins, um, 
the NRSC was said to be fully behind Kelly Leffler, and before she was even formally announced, sent word to me that they were going to treat her like an incumbent. They were going to support her reelection. And re- frankly, when you have a candidate willing to spend twenty million bucks, that takes a lot of pressure off the NRSC because you know they that they can spend that money. They still might pour a lot of resources and money into Georgia, but. They, they don't have to spend as much in Georgia, and they can focus some of their attention on other hot, hot spots around the nation. And I think it's also worth noting, we've noted it before, that President Trump has not said he was unhappy with her either. Yeah. You know, she went on that another secret trip to go meet with him um, as Governor Kemp hoped to get President Trump's blessing. And he didn't go that far, but he also, we know that when President Trump doesn't like what's going on, he's going to tweet or say something, and he has not. So I think that's a good sign for her as well. The caveat is that this is being taped at 2.30 on Thursday. So by the time you hear this, that might have changed. But you're right. I've been kind of impressed with the Kemp team at how they've forced this into a stalemate. Um, they haven't they haven't gotten a tweet supportive of Kelly Leffler, but they also haven't gotten one that's negative about her either. And that's about the best they could hope for, to be honest. Right. I mean, you know, after all the the forceful advocacy for a guy who's in the middle of the throes of impeachment, who's spending a lot of his time watching the testimony and pushing back against Democrats um, to to come to Atlanta and and personally lobby the governor to, to tap Doug Collins to call him and then to take time out of a Sunday afternoon and meet with both Kelly Leffler and, and, and Brian Kemp, you know, this is not some insignificant amount of time for him. Yeah, and I think it's just so interesting. The Leffler rollout has gone well, you know, pretty well. Um, folks seem to be, you know, at least quelled the criticism in the outcry in the short term, you know, we haven't seen folks just going off saying she's crazy, you know, that they're, she's terrible for Georgia, even though there's still some there's of that. There's like a lot of wait and see attitude a from lot of wait and Republican see. elected officials who just, who again, say they don't know her. And right. they, they, they're waiting to sit down with her and to hear from her personally before they, they're reserving judgment. Right. And they're also waiting for Doug Collins, right? Right. They're waiting to see what he does. And because- he's saying he's going to wait till after impeachment, which technically by next week, um, before the Christmas break is when the House is expected to vote on articles of impeachment. We expect that to pass along a party line vote with Democrats in favor, Republicans opposed. And after that vote is when, you know, the pressure is going to be on to see what Representative Collins does from them from there about whether he wants to run against Senator Leffler or not. And then you're running into the holidays, right? If you're if this is August, you'd expect something sooner than later. Uh, some decision, but he ain't going to decide right before Christmas, I don't think. I don't think We'll see. So. You know, we can record, this, we can play this back. But same thing with the Democrats, by the way, too, right? We're, we, if, if, the, if this announcement came out a little earlier, we might be able to expect a Democrat, a, a major Democrat getting into the race in early December. Um, but now we're so close to the holidays, it doesn't seem like Democrats will, will get in this, this close to Christmas and New Year's. Um, but next year, you know, early January... It's wide open. Yeah, we hear the folks in DeKalb still are waiting to see if CEO Michael Thurman decides to run for Senate versus running for re-election. Um, and Sherry Boston, too, has yeah. not ruled it out. And there are, there are some operatives, and she's the DA of DeKalb. And there are some there are some – she has some big fans in the Democratic Party who think that, although her, her name idea isn't very high, that she would be a formidable candidate right out the bat. And Lieberman's son – Matthew Lieberman, Matthew Lieberman. Has, has been running now for 
two or three months. They expect to post some, they lately say, significant fundraising numbers. Um, they said the, the, right out the gate they already had $250,000, which which you know might seem a small amount compared to whatever this race is going to end up being like. But right now, if he, if he ends up with you know a, a mid six figures haul, he, that puts him right where Teresa Tomlinson was after a quarter or two, right? So um, that he can make this race really interesting. Yeah, and I also think what's going to be so interesting about the race is again Senator Leffler as the incumbent. How far right does she go? not just with words, but actions in the Senate. Because if the whole kind of calculus was we want someone who can appeal to those moderate women voters in the Atlanta suburbs, then someone who's super, super, super conservative, even if they're also a woman, um, may not appeal to them in the way the GOP hopes. So it's like, what's the balance there? Yeah, it's a really tricky act because, you know, you have Doug Collins maybe out there or another conservative maybe out there on your flank. And Republicans know there's not that much wiggle room, especially with the with the chance that Democrats might unite. Most Democrats could possibly unite by one candidate, whether that be someone who gets in the race January or whether it ends up being Matt Lieberman. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm constantly reminded not to not to count anyone out because even though he's not the party favorite, um, he could end up becoming, you know, more of a force than we ever expect. Let's also talk about some of the other, you know, we, we talked about the political challenges she faces, Kelly Leffler faces as she prepares to take office, but also the ethical challenges because, she might well be the richest, when we don't know yet when she files her paperwork, but she might well be the richest person in Congress, or at least in the Senate, which is saying something, because there's that some is saying mega, something. mega millionaires. She's willing to spend $20 million at least on her own race. But how she handles a lot of these tricky votes, I mean, she's the, her husband is the head of Inter- Intercontinental Exchange, which owns the New York Stock Exchange. She's the head of a cryptocurrency company called Back that's a subsidiary of that company. She'll step down from that, that job, obviously. But what vote she recuses herself from and what role she plays in Senate will be really interesting because her husband is still one of the most powerful financial executives on the planet. And will she vote for a new SEC commissioner? Will she you know, try to sit on the banking or finance or another powerful panel that oversees financial aspects of in the U.S. economy? Will she vote on... Uh, commodities legislation that sets up how commodity markets work. All these questions remain to be seen. They've said, you know, her, her campus said broadly that she intends to follow the spirit and letter of the law. But what that means, we're still kind of uncertain. Right. And I mean, she's she's got to untangle her business ties, you know, in very short order. She takes office, you know, technically January one. Um, I would expect she'll probably be officially sworn, like formally yeah. sworn in later. But technically, as of January 1, she's a U.S. senator. And that means technically any time after January 1, she could be asked to vote on anything that could, you know, kind of have create some conflicts with her business dealings and personal ties. And that, you know, waiting patiently to see those financial disclosures, as you said, because that's going to tell us a lot. 
And does she put, she doesn't have to put her money in a blind trust, but does she, does she go a step beyond what she's required to do? We've seen in Georgia mixed bag with that. Sonny Perdue, when he was the governor, never put his funds in a blind trust. But once he was, uh, once he was up for ag secretary, he said, yeah, I'll, I'll do that if it, if it allays any concerns about him. And he was directly involved in the agribusiness. So um, he kind of had to do that. Uh, Johnny Isaacson, the head of the ethics, com- the, the chair of the Senate ethics committee, um, didn't put his money in the blind trust for years. And then a Wall Street Journal story uh, kind of pinpointed him and some other senators in stock trades. And he said, you know what? I want to do everything I can to be above board. I'll put my money in that blind trust. Uh, David Perdue, um, much like his cousin, did not put his, does not have his money in a blind trust and has gotten dinged for some stock trades um, from, from watchdog groups too. So there's not a clear example in Georgia politics, at least right now. It's not like everyone does one thing or the other. It's kind of a mixed bag. Yeah, um, I think, again, to me, what she decides to do is going to still be part of that package she's presenting to voters. Because, again, she doesn't have six years for them to forget it or, or, you know, smooth things over. She's still a candidate with a race in August. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, right around the corner, right? I mean, August is qualifying, but November is when she'll— Right, November. Yeah. Yeah. It's, but it's going to be uh, a madcap by August. I think you're right about that. Um, let's talk about, too, we, we talked about impeachment a little bit earlier. And um, just the other day, there was a major conflict between two Georgians who are right in the middle of this battle. Yeah, so it's been interesting with impeachment. We have three Georgia members on the House Judiciary Committee, which is where impeachment rests right mm-hmm. now. And, you know, later on today, we expect the Judiciary Committee to a approve the two articles of impeachment along party lines. But you've got um, both Hank Johnson and now Lucy McBath stating very strongly that they support impeaching President Trump. And it's interesting because for a while, McBath was getting dinged by her opponents um, because, of course, she's got, you know, Republicans who want to mm-hmm. retake that seat back um, this next year. So they were they were saying both she's with the Democrats and wanting to move forward with impeachment and she's not giving President Trump a fair chance. But they were also saying she's not saying where she stands. She's uh, hiding how she feels because she doesn't want voters to know the truth. And it's clear that Representative McBath feels emboldened to be clear and forceful about how she talks about impeachment, which I find interesting because her her political team, her campaign team, tends to be really, really cautious. So for her to be speaking so you know clearly about impeachment to me makes me think that her campaign team thinks she's, you know, she's holding strong and she can come out strong and still be okay politically. And remember, this was after when when the push for impeachment really solidified and you started seeing Georgia candidates and Georgia and, and, and John Lewis and, uh, you know, just the, the cascade of candidates get behind, uh, and politicians, Democrats, getting behind the impeachment cause about two months ago, Lucy McBath was was the rare exception who didn't immediately get on board and really had more of a nuanced answer um, for it, where she said, I, if, I can't remember the exact statement, but she essentially said that she's still continues to be okay with opening the formal inquiry, but wasn't completely behind the impeachment effort. Yeah, because that reflected some of the some of the cautiousness. Now, though, she's all in. She is all in. And I mean, it, it 
to me, that's something I'm going to be looking at because it seems to be that like on both sides that there's more and more um, assumption maybe might not be the right word, but that her district isn't as competitive as it as it once was, that she's doing pretty well and that she'll be harder to beat than what um, was initially kind of the guess when she, you know, when she was first elected that, you know, that's still a seat that's a toss up and it's still a toss up. Don't get me wrong, but that she seems to be getting more solid there as an incumbent and harder to beat next year. And that's interesting because it kind of, it's funny because it's kind of seeing what we're seeing on the Republican side of that race. We're seeing, um, Karen Handel's obviously still in it, trying to make the comeback bid, and she's, she held the seat for about a year and a half after um, after beating John Ossoff in that 17 election. Um, but her rivals, some of them formidable. I mean, Senator, State Senator Brandon Beach was one of the more powerful people in the legislature, drops out of that contest, says, I want to stay in the Senate. I've thought twice about it. Um, we didn't... He, he issued a long statement, but but we heard from some of his advisors essentially that he... One of the, th- one of the reasons, there's several, but one of the reasons was he saw the... The off cycle, the off year, local elections in Dunwoody and in other places around the sixth district, and saw Democrats, you know, Democratic candidates in those nonpartisan races do really well, and that was kind of a, you know, a, a, a harbinger. He, I think his his advisors thought, um, and other candidates who were kind of more fringe have either dropped out or are saying one of them, Marjorie Taylor Greene, is indicating that she'd rather run for the fourteenth district, which we talked about last week, and we'll talk about a little bit more in a second, but. That one's open. So I think the fact that these Republicans on the other side are getting squeamish about the race, too, might mean that it might be a signal to some that Republicans aren't as giddy about this as they could be. Although you're right, that could change in six months and we could be talking about the hottest race in Georgia in this in the nation, really. Yeah. And it's still I mean, of course, I I don't think, you know, Lucy McBath is going to throw all caution to the wind and just, you know, all of a sudden go further left and be super, super out there. But it does seem like she's starting to kind of let go a little bit because she was so cautious and so restrained. And maybe some of that's just time in office. It's a good story, by the way. Yes, Um, it's coming. Yeah, I like this. Um, So let's talk about that Tom Graves seat because um, this is fun. But last time we taped this, it was like, I don't know, it seemed like an hour or two after Congressman Tom Graves uh, very abruptly in a, in a move that stunned many people, not just us political types, but also people in his district, um, that he was going to resign and, and not uh, not stand for re-election in 2020, giving us a second Republican retirement. But unlike Rob Woodall, unlike uh, Woodall, who represents the 7th District, a very competitive district, this is not a pickup opportunity for Democrats, I mean, unless something crazy happens. This is one of the most conservative districts east, east of the Mississippi. Um, but we weren't really sure why Tom Graves had made the decision um, so abruptly. And we talked about some speculation that he could be interested in challenging Kelly Leffler because uh, it came a day after Kelly was formally announced as the next senator. Well, he listened to the podcast. Thank you for listening, Congressman. And he tweeted at us, uh, basically, nope, <laughs> I'm not lying to you. I am not running for the U.S. Senate. I really did resign to go spend more time with his family. So we we trust him on that one. One less one less potential candidate to run against uh, Kelly Leffler. But it also opens up 
a broad range of candidates who are interested in that race already. And we thank you, Representative yes. Graves, for listening to the podcast um, and for giving us feedback to the podcast to let us know you guys are out there and we aren't talking to ourselves. But it does. It it makes it clear that, like, again, both this Senate race is, you know, we're trying to handicap who may run against Kelly Leffler, who we don't know as far as running mm-hmm. from the right. Mm-hmm. And then for his seat, of course, super wide open race in a very solid conservative district, but still wide open. Yeah. And there's lots of names we're hearing and some interesting names. One of them is Marjorie Taylor Greene. She was she's a, a construction executive who is running the sixth district, a political newcomer, very far, uh, very conservative. Um, is perhaps most famous among conservatives for launching a petition to oust to impeach Speaker Pelosi. Um, she doesn't live in the district. She lives in North Fulton. So she was at a, a 14th district activist meeting where she was recorded saying that she's thinking about either moving or just running in the 14th, which is two districts over. It's not like it's the next door district. It is it is in between, I think it's the 11th is sandwiched in between those two districts. Barry Loudermuck's district is between the two districts. So she's thinking about just, hey, and there's no law against it. You can do that. Um, but it does make it a lot harder for Republicans to to make the argument that Lucy McBath is a carpetbagger or anything like that um, if, if, there's, if you're running for a seat that that um, you don't where you don't live. And there's some other names. Um, Trey Kelly, the House Majority Whip, one of the top ranking Georgia House members, sent word the other day that he is not interested in the race, but he, he was kind of out there with with his interest for a couple of days. But he sent a note to all of his fellow Republican caucus members that no, he's not it. He's not going to run. Um, State Senator Jeff Mullis, one of the most powerful Republicans in the Senate, um, has sent note, word that he is interested um, Paulding County School Board member Jason Anavatarte, who is also trying to be a Senate appointee, he was one of the many people who, appoint, who applied for Senate, is said to be interested in Charlize Bird, a former state legislator. There's a lot of other names. Someone, uh, uh, an operative said that Mike Bob Barr, the former libertarian presidential candidate, former U.S. attorney, and a former Republican congressman uh, from, from Cobb County might be interested. Uh, it's such a interesting race because it's such a super conservative district that... And it's up there in the Dalton area for folks who are trying to... Yeah, it's the northwest corner of Georgia. It goes all the way down to Paulding. So there's like a slice of kind of metro Atlanta-ish territory, but very conservative. It covers some parts of Rome and and, um, a very, very conservative part of Georgia. So there could be an activist or or a self-finance candidate that we just don't have any clue. We don't know at all who could just emerge and be the guy or the or the, or the gal. And qualifying for house races is what March May. It's going to be um, good question. I think it's Mar- well March for the state legislature. It should be March for that race too. Yeah, um, it's not a special election. the The only reason I'm hesitating is because. The Senate, we're not quite sure when this when the open Senate seat qualifying is yet because it's a special election. So it could either be March or more likely in August um, or September. It could be like 90 days before the election. But that's a that's a whole nother story. <laughs> yeah. And we didn't even get to the Hank Johnson clap back. Oh, did we not? Jeez. Hank Johnson read as people are calling it. Yeah. So let's talk about that before we jet. Well, um, just today, about. A couple hours ago, we started seeing on Twitter that people were saying, wow, uh, Matt Gates is bringing up alleged substance abuse by Hunter Biden, which we know is former Vice President Joe Biden's son. And 
his name is all wrapped up in this impeachment probe in Ukraine. And and so um, today the House Judiciary Committee is meeting both Hank Johnson and Representative Matt Gates, who Georgia folks um, know about, because that's the same congressman who was criticizing Governor Kemp for not appointing Doug Collins to the Isaacson Senate seat. And he kind of came after Kemp. And so a lot of the Kemp uh, folks, Kemp supporters, kind of said, Matt Gates, stay Keep, keep out of Georgia business. And so, um, well, now he's got another Georgia representative uh, clapping back at him, and that's Hank Johnson. Because Matt Gates again, brought up um, substance abuse allegations against Hunter Biden as part of his speech on the, the impeachment. And Hank Johnson basically said, um, this may be the pot calling the kettle black. And, and he said, I don't know if anyone here has been arrested for DUI, but if so, I certainly would have brought it up in the committee meeting. And guess what? Hmm, Matt Gates has been arrested wow. and charged with a DUI before. So um, it was somewhat veiled. And it's it, it definitely, that exchange became the most, and it's kind of sad to say, but an exchange about substance abuse and DUIs is like the most talked about. Yeesh exchange from today's impeachment serious serious stuff you know impeachment and we're talking about clapbacks duis matt gates once again and hank johnson who you know he's kind of a laid back yeah. kind of guy he's very zen i mean he's one of the only buddhist members in he's in a Congress. buddhist very very classy. even toned even tempered guy so people are saying they're a little bit surprised that he was the one to rebuke Representative Gates. It went viral. There are a lot of tweets. Um, um, I wrote a little something about it. And, you know, folks are like, wow, can you believe Hank Johnson? Oh, and they call it a read. That's what the kids call it. When you kind of give it back to someone, you're reading them. And he read R-E-A-D. That was a read of Matt Gates. That's So I got a text from a Democratic operative it said, Georgia three, Matt Gates zero. And I said, what are the three wins? And one was the other thing, the big thing that happened today was water wars. Georgia um, won a, a pretty significant legal uh, battle in the long running fight over water resources with Florida. Um, I guess this clapped back. And then, of course, Matt Gates was one of the most vocal uh, supporters of Doug Collins for the U.S. Senate seat and gave um, Georgia Republicans a pretty juicy target because rather than trying to attack some local activists. They were making Matt Gates the center of all their focus. So Matt Gates has had a, a rough week here, here in Georgia, at least. Yeah, he might not be making any trips to Georgia anytime <laughs> soon, even though I'm sure he flies through Atlanta all the time. So, you know, wave to Matt Gates when you see him. There you go. Well, Tia, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to have a lot more to talk about uh, in just a couple of days. All right. Thank you. That's all for this edition of the Politically Georgia podcast. Visit AJC.com slash politics for all the latest in Georgia news. I'm Greg Bluestein signing off. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, the Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. 
Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.